Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Donna Doan Anderson, PhD candidate in history and Asian American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I couldn't be more thrilled that my first episode as host is alongside Dr. Ma Bong, Associate Professor of Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Merced. In this episode, we discuss how secrecy structures both official knowledge and refugee epistemologies about militarism and forced migration, as found in Vong's book, History on the Run, Secrecy, Fugivity, and Hmong Refugee Epistemologies. Published in 2021 by Duke University Press, the book recently received an honorable mention for the Association of Asian American Studies Book Award in Humanities and Cultural Studies for Multidisciplinary and Interdisciplinary Works. In addition to History on the Run, Ma Vong is the co-author of Departures, an Introduction to Critical Refugee Studies, published in 2022 by the University of California Press, and co-editor of Claiming Place on the Agency of Hmong Women, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2016. In addition to her scholarship, Vong founded the program in Critical Race and Ethnic Studies as a new major at UC Merced and served as the program's inaugural chair from 2017 to 2020. Vong is also a founding member of the Critical Refugee Studies Collective, whose research, public engagement, and grant-giving activities center the refugee as a subject of knowledge rather than an object of study. Thinking about the Hmong refugee as a compositional subject and how the refugee archive as repertoire affirms Hmong presence in the reproduction and transmission of knowledge encompass the major interventions and critiques that are found in History on the Run. Between 1961 and 1975, The United States waged a secret, unauthorized war in Laos, a direct violation of the 1954 Geneva Accords, which stipulated that Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam remain free from foreign military intervention after their independence from France. As communist ideology began to threaten U.S. investments in Asia, the U.S. conscripted Hmong along with other ethnic and indigenous groups in Southeast Asia, such as Mian, Camus, Ka and Lao as proxy soldiers in order to aid its war efforts in Vietnam. The Hmong pilots, under the command of Hmong leader General Vong Pao, were part of the CIA-operated secret army in northeastern Laos to combat North Vietnamese troops operating in the region. The secrecy that shrouded the war continues to have critical implications on Hmong refugee historiography. As Ma Vong demonstrates in History on the Run, The violence of ongoing erasure is found in the redactions of and within official state documents, as well as in the orientation of the Hmong refugee and their ways of knowing as fugitive, or, in other words, quote, being in but not of the nation state and its official history, end quote. This demonstrates how the Hmong refugee is critical to understanding the violence of colonialism and war, state governance, and national belonging. How do we engage with the elusiveness of histories that are systematically kept secret? How does centering the refugee story and the refusals complicate and create histories on the run? We'll find out in our conversation with Ma Vong right after the announcement from our sponsors. Thank you so much, Ma, for joining me in conversation today. The book opens up with an anecdote about a lost baggage claim, which you find in the middle of a Hmong family's resettlement case file. The lost baggage claim, you state, illustrates the very basis of imperial structures found within studies of war, displacement, the archive, and the refugee movement. Could you tell us more about how this lost baggage claim symbolize your book's argument about histories on the run, fugitive knowledge, and secrecy? Yeah. um, So, you know, I encountered this uh, lost baggage claim among um, a family uh, resettlement case file. And, uh, you know, everything else within that file were, you know, other kinds of mundane documents, um, including, you know, rent receipts. And um, but what struck me about this, this half sheet of a uh, lost baggage claim is um, that it symbolized for me what I um had been trying to talk about in terms of secrecy and the violence of the uh, absence of knowledge, uh, historical knowledge in particular. 
And so the, the baggage claim for me symbolizes that imperial baggage, right? The imperial baggage um, of the relationship between the colonial relationship between, um, you know, Hmong people and the United States during the secret war in Laos. Um, and it's also a sort of imperial baggage in the sense that uh, the discourse, the prevailing discourse about whether it's Hmong refugees, Hmong Americans, or Hmong who are still living in, in Southeast Asia, um, that there were no colonial relationships, right? Um, but in fact, they were, right? With, with the French, with um, Japan, and with the US, and, and, and sort of the state relationships with Laos as well. So I wanted to center um, Hmong refugee uh, losses in, in this, uh, baggage claim, because that's what it, you know, symbolized materially, right, on, on the surface level is that, you know, it is a claim for having lost a baggage in travel. Um, but what I saw in it was that it was um, other refugee losses, right? So of course, they're, they're the loss of their luggage that carried important and valuable uh, clothing and other artifacts that couldn't be, um, you know, recovered. And um, and beyond that, it, it carried um, their other losses, right? Because the, the baggage claim was the items that were um, lost were items that they themselves had lost when they fled from Laos, uh, crossing the Mekong River into Thailand. So, and then they had to find, you know, replace those items too, um, including the silver jewelry um, and, and so all of these losses, and then of course the loss of of Hmong, um, or or you know I wouldn't say loss, but also um, the fleeing of Hmong spirits, Hmong Jubli, right, individual spirits um, in this flight, um, and and then the loss of family, right, family members who um, might have passed along the the, the escape route or um, uh, you know, left behind, right, uh, as families were, were fleeing. So all of those losses, to me, even though the, the last baggage claim itself, you know, didn't capture this, right, as a document, as a sort of archival document, um, I read into it all of these other losses that, that were there that had no other way to be told. Um, and so for me, I saw the way that I wanted to tell the story through this last baggage claim is actually to tell all of those other losses, um, and, but then to tell the stories and the knowledge that um, Hmong families still carried with them, right? Even if they had lost, um, you know, artifacts and, and family members. Um, and, and so the, the last baggage claim came to symbolize all of these things. Um, you know, loss, knowledge, right, uh, and, and imperial baggage and, and imperial history um, that, you know, I was trying to find other ways to tell, uh, but the, the archive was limiting, right? Um, and so I couldn't figure out a way to tell these stories, and, and the lost baggage claim was a way to actually um, make known these stories and gesture toward these stories. Without necessarily, and the, the the main point is without necessarily recovering these stories for what they were, right? That to say that there is a truth, um, and then there are truths, there are multiple truths, but to, not to say that there is one true story or history about Hmong refugee experiences um, and migration. Yeah, and I think what you said about the archive being limited is really fascinating. And I, I feel like that builds into your critique about secrecy, right? It's not about recovery necessarily, but thinking about what multiple truths there are invested in something like, you know, a lost baggage claim in the middle of a case file that we, we would find in an archive. So would you mind telling us a little bit and about the way secrecy structures our knowledge and particularly how secrecy structures say, the secret war in Laos, um, how do you use this as a method for interpretation and critique of these categories that you talk about that involve histories on the run? The project was to uh, find a way to tell or, or talk about Hmong histories. Um, 
And before I encountered the lost baggage claim form, I had done research, um, uh, you know, other sort of presidential libraries looking for historical documents talking about Laos and among people in particular. And so what I had encountered, um, especially in documents pertaining to Laos, was that they were heavily redacted. Um, and so it was difficult to sort of read, you know, as, as researchers uh, would expect to, to see is a, a full sort of story, right? A full narrative, even in um, cables or memos, right? Um, that people were sending to each other. Uh, and so, you know, that left me confused and I actually didn't know how to sort of think about the redactions um, in those documents. And so it wasn't until I, I saw the last baggage claim form that I realized that, uh, you know, that those redactions meant something and what they meant were the erasure of knowledge, right? Um, and the covering up of knowledge. And so uh, it may, and so I, my turn to secrecy is, as knowledge is to think through how do we come to know about knowledge or historical knowledge? Um, how do we come to know what we know? And that actually what we know, um, the, the knowledge that we have, whether it's a per, about a particular event, history, um, is that it is already um, structured by this context of secrecy, right? That what we know um, is also, also shaped by what we don't know about that historical event um, or that experience. So that, you know, even when we think about official knowledge, um, that it's already embedded in, in a sort of denial, right? A sort of covering up. Um, and that when we think about refugee knowledge, it is already structured within that, that denial and the covering up, right? And so I didn't, I don't use the word secret, um, as knowledge or secrets, um, because I wanted to, you know, when we think about secrets, we do think about hidden information. We think about denying information um, and a secret as a kind of, or secrets themselves as a kind of object. And, and then, you know, in that sense, uh, the question I always get is then what are Hmong secrets, right? Um, and so I wanted to move away from uh, offering what Hmong secrets are, or that secrets only belong to, you know, Hmong people, Hmong refugees, or, or refugees in general. Um, so thinking about secrecy as uh, a structure of knowledge, right, that actually it's not just the things that are hidden, but secrecy structures the things that are hidden and the things that are readily available um, for, for our own sort of consumption and understanding. Right. So that's how I, I thought about secrecy as as a structure of knowledge. And this came, comes from um, thinking through uh, and, and, you know, Derrida's work right about the archive, but then also about um, uh, literature and, and knowledge formation and how, um, you know, for him, it's it is about sort of a structuring of uh of the archive, right, rather than um, what the, the actual contents of the archive are. Um, and so, you know, it really helps me sort of think through uh, that what, that there is no totalizing knowledge, even though that is sort of our impetus to, to search for, for complete forms of formations of knowledge. Right. And I, and I love how, like, in that particular chapter, for people who have read the book, um, and for those of you who haven't, please, I highly encourage that you do. Um, the graphic image that you have of the redacted document, which I think is so powerful, which demonstrates how um, essentially it's like an impossible task, right? It's not the task that you're explicitly after. You're not trying to, like you said, um, uncover these secrets, right? But it's more the fact of like what is what we're actually up against, right? This official government document that has secret at the top crossed out but then blocks of black covering up most of the text. So like, what do we do with that information? And I think 
In chapter two of the book, you offer some potential solutions to that complexity of uh, secrecy, right? Um, and you introduce this concept or methodological approach of missing things. So could you tell us a little bit more about um, how missing things, whether they be documents or maps, address the epistemological dilemma of understanding Hmong involvement in the war? Yeah. Um, and so missing things, you know, goes back to the to the lost baggage. Um, but but really also thinking more broadly about uh, historical knowledge formation and you know, my, and, and my desire as I, I began to pursue the project was to write a, a perhaps a complete or more as complete of a history, right, of, of Hmong refugees experiences as I could. And so as I, but as I embarked on the research and found the redactions, found, um, you know, things in the archive and even as I looked at, I did interviews um, that that the stories themselves sometimes almost line up or match up to each other, right? The interviews and then what I was seeing in the archives or what I was reading as secondary source material. And, um, but, but for me, what was important was to sort of take those missing moments, the, the redactions, um, and and what people weren't telling me, right? What were you know what people were saying, but what I knew was also more to what they were saying that didn't end up you know coming through in the interviews. Uh, looking at those moments to really see how knowledge is is formed or made, and and how stories are told. Um. So. So for me, it, it is reading those redactions, not not as text, right? But but uh, reading as image, and and so it is. It was a really interesting turn for me to think about uh, even maps, right? So I was looking at sort of CIA maps of um, how they were understanding the the geopolitical um, uh, context of Laos. Uh, for them to justify a U.S. involvement, or you know, um, and 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 sending you know resources and military personnel um, to train Hmong and other um, Laotian uh, groups to to be involved in the war. That so looking at those maps um, and and reading those maps, right, both as maps but also as texts. Um, and so for me, the, the missing things is to actually look at the, not just the content, um, but also the form. Um, and so, so the redactions, the maps, um, and even the stories themselves, right? How the stories are told were, uh, and, 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 and the last baggage claim form, all of those, uh, and you know, and their form that they take shape in, really sort of allowed for a way to talk about things that were missing, and not necessarily to name those missing things, right? But to gesture toward um, the the stories and the experiences that were there, but always missed, right? Um, and so for me. Uh, it allowed missing things allowed me to think about historical knowledge as incomplete, um, and, and not to say that we shouldn't tell history, right? Because it's it's going to be incomplete anyway. But to to tell history with the knowledge that it is already an incomplete story, um, and as a way to um, encourage interest and, and critical thinking, right, uh, and, and encourage questions um, and good questions about what happened and to whom and, and what about the people who, you know, violence happened to, right, um, that whose stories never really get to be a part of the historical narrative when we talk about, you know, the Vietnam War, right, um, or the Cold War. So, so for me, it is the missing things really symbolized the incompleteness of the archive, the incompleteness of telling histories, um, and as 
you know, as a kind of methodology to really look for the things that are not said, right, alongside the things that are said. And this is, you know, from Foucault's um, ideas of, of um, genealogy and archaeology, right? Um, right. And I think that's really important context for us to understand about how Laos and particularly Hmong soldiers like fit into the broader understanding of the wars in Southeast Asia. Um, and so I, I think the middle part of your book transitions into maybe examining the Hmong soldier um, as a figure, right? And so in chapter three, you introduce the Hmong Veterans Naturalization Act of 1997 um, to examine the contradictions found within the actual term refugee soldier and how the deployment of U.S. benevolence um, is enacted through the offering of citizenship through this act. And then um, could you tell us a little bit about how the linguistic contradictions of the term refugee soldier and the 1997 act produce a contractual obligation to the United States that extends from the war? When I turn to look at the uh, legislation, um, and, and it was really one of the first or few non-redacted sort of government documents that I that I found about um, you know Hmong refugees, Hmong Americans. And so that I guess that was, you know, kind of began my interest in, in looking at the legislation, but also um, you know, I guess I'll talk about why the legislation is important and then I'll, I'll go to to um, sort of an analyzing it further. I think it, the legislation is important for uh, Hmong refugees at the time um, as a way to actually uh, find a pathway towards citizenship, right? So as, as you know, people who resettle to the United States as refugees, they have legal, um, refugees in general have a kind of legal pathway towards citizenship, right? Um, but there were language um, barriers um, to getting citizenship because part of the citizenship test is to um, uh, to actually answer the questions in English, right? Um, and and to have uh, um, and and then also to to have some some written um, skills. So uh, the legislation was a way to bypass um, the the English. Uh, literacy test part of the test uh, and it so what was important about the legislation is that it you know when it ultimately passed in 2000 it did allow um, hundreds of Hmong veterans uh, Hmong refugees to um, attain citizenship right so you know as a way to sort of think about that but then the legislation itself, when it was introduced in 1997, the, um, which is the, the document that I analyzed, uh, really what I found was that contradiction between the ways in which uh, Hmong veterans were discussed as soldiers um, and, and talked about uh, as soldiers, but then also uh, you know, even though they were former soldiers and, and now veterans, um, they came to the United States as refugees, right? So they did not, you know, they did not arrive in the U.S. as as uh, U.S. Um, not even necessarily part of U.S. military personnel, but just related to the U.S. military, right? They came to the United States as um, refugees because the war was secret, right? And so. Um, when uh, the Americans evacuated, you know, high-ranking military personnel, um, you know, Hmong refugees were not part of that um, uh, evacuation. So, so the contradiction in the discussion of the legislation that I that I read was that, well, then how would, if the legislation were to be passed to benefit veterans who had fought for the United States, right? This is a benefit that they would they would receive that that those determining who would be eligible, right? The question was about eligibility. Uh, how would they know who was a veteran and who was a refugee, right? And so this contradiction to me was fascinating 
um, because it spoke to the contradictions of how uh, U.S. secret war in Laos happened in the first place and how they handled um, the training right, of soldiers who are both Hmong, Lao, Mian, Khmer, and others, um, but then also right, the abandonment of, of these folks after the end, the end of the war. So for me, and, and, and then so, you know, there are arguments about what there is no distinction, right? Because the refugees are the, the veterans. Um, and then there's other arguments about, well, you know, we would know because the, uh, we would ask them to show us, you know, that we could see their physical wounds, right? And that they, we, we would know that, that they had fought um, in the war and that they're actual veterans, right? So this question helped me to, this dilemma helped me to sort of develop this, this concept of the refugee soldier. Um, not to say that all Hmong, you know, the, the idea is not to say that all Hmong veteran refugees are or were soldiers, right? But to say that there is um, a contradiction in the U.S. military project and the U.S. imperial project um, that already posits all refugees as militarized, right? Um, and and that refugees whether they actually took up arms, um, were already imbricated in, in the process because they had to flee their villages. Um, they had to send uh, family members to fight, fight and, and to join the military, to join the army, the secret army. Um, and they themselves were um, subjected to uh, sort of military aggression, right? Whether it's from the sort of quote unquote communist soldiers or even the, the uh, CIA trained, right, um, soldiers. So it, it is part of that argument to say that when we think about who Hmong refugees are, that it is also that they do come from this politicized, militarized context, and they just didn't emerge out of nowhere after the end of the war after they had crossed, you know, struggled to cross the Mekong River, you know, to, to make it to the Thai side, right? Um, and uh, so for me, it symbolized all of that, um, but also symbolized uh, the ongoing kind of, I think, subjection, right, um, to this colonial relationship, um, to this militarized relationship between um, Hmong and the U.S. government. So in a sense that it continues to allow um, Hmong veterans and, and other segments of the Hmong community to uh, claim right a, an affiliation to the United States um, as allies, as, as soldiers, um, but then also you know, erasing other aspects of this relationship, right, and of Hmong experiences um, that happened uh, through their their involvement with the United States. So uh, the refugee soldiers sort of symbolized all of those different components of, of, the, of a very complicated relationship during the Secret War, but afterwards as well. Yeah, and I think those complications are especially interesting, as you mentioned, like the refugee as a militarized subject, but yet this transition into, oh, we can offer them citizenship because they've demonstrated their loyalties or they've, you know, even physically have the markers, the scars on their bodies to demonstrate their loyalties. Um, so thinking about this transition, right, of refugee from militarized to refugee as a friend, and then as you get into um, in chapter four, how it can be a potential threat, right? So in chapter four, you introduce us to the story of General Vong Pao um, and how General Vong Pao has kind of moved from the quote unquote new friend into uh, the terrorist ally, which is the term you use in chapter four. So what does the response by Hmong refugees or Hmong Americans tell us about the spaces between these categories and potentially how that transition happens? How do we move from the refugee as a new friend to a potential terrorist ally? 
Yeah, so General Wang Pao was a um, was the uh, main um, was the general in which uh, the CIA recruited to lead the secret army um, and to fight to sort of hold down the the ground war um, in the northeastern region part of Laos, and and. Then he in turn recruited um, many, many Hmong soldiers, um, up to 40,000 um, during the height of the war uh, to fight in this, to join the secret army. And so he, you know, in a lot of sense, epitomized the, the refugee soldier uh, of a willing ally, right? Um, and in some ways, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that he was the the docile ally, but um, you know, a, a willing ally nonetheless. And 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 he himself is a complicated figure because he was um, you know willing to to join forces with the United States to receive weaponry and and um, other forms of support. Um, but he also, along with other Hmong leaders um, at the time, had a sort of political vision of, you know, what would, what would it mean for Hmong in Laos to have political autonomy, right? So these were the other sort of political underpinnings um, that that uh, went into his, his involvement. So he was the epitome of the refugee soldier as the ally. Um, he um, was evacuated uh, at the end of in, in 1975 after the fall of Saigon, and and then and then Lungking, which is the the a military base um, that he he held, and so then in 2007 um, he uh, was arrested at his home in Santa Ana uh, by the uh, FBI. Uh, based on charges of terrorism. And the charge was that he um, and others, about 10 other uh, uh, Hmong leaders, community leaders, were conspiring to overthrow the um, government of Laos, a nation that the United States is now at peace with. The charge of terrorism was that he was a US citizen plotting to overthrow a foreign government. Um, or, or the, not necessarily the charge of terrorism, but but the charge against him. And the terrorism aspect was that uh, those acts would um, the overthrow the plot to overthrow the Lao government is is actually a terrorist act. So um, his arrest, along with um, uh, the other members um, who were deemed to sort of be in in cohorts with him. Um, caused an uproar in the Hmong American community um, because he also represented, a, you know, for not all, but for some segments of the Hmong community, a kind of father figure, right? Um, in that he led Hmong people to the United States, which many don't necessarily believe that's true because he fled, right, um, after, after the fall of Saigon and looking. So, um, but the overarching um, narrative of support for him was that he was this loyal um, ally to the United States and that this is a betrayal um, by the United States to arrest him. Um, And it's actually a second betrayal, right? Because the first betrayal was that the United States left Laos um, after the war and left Hmong people to fend for themselves against the um, uh, communist soldiers that were coming into the villages and, um, and left them to fend for themselves as they were fleeing Laos to, to get into Thailand and, and other countries. So um, this, this charge or the support for John Arvang Pao was that he was loyal to the United States, and he would never, right, um, um, do anything, right, to um, hurt the United States, and that what he did 
was actually to help the United States, right? That this is the other sort of uh, piece of the argument. Um, and what he what he did, if he did it, was to actually help uh, Hmong people who were still living in Laos who had fled, but um, remain in the jungles, right? Because they could, um, they refused to surrender to the new communist government. Um, and so, you know, the alleged plot was his way of actually rescuing, right? These, um, the um, Hmong who had fled into the jungles, what many are called Hmong um, And so he was actually doing or finishing a job that the United States wasn't and didn't finish, right, um, in helping Hmong people. Um, so, so that's kind of, those are the different kinds of narratives of support, overwhelming support for Jara Rangpa after his arrest. Um, but his arrest also came in this post 9-11 moment, right? The language of the enemy was a terrorist, right? Um, became or turned to become a terrorist. And, and the fact that he was charged with terrorism um, to attempt to overthrow uh, a Laotian, the Laotian government, um, many uh, in the Hmong community also saw that as, as the United States uh, trying to, um, you know, capture um, and, and root out all the terrorists that it could find, right? Um, and so that General Ving Pao now is in the same league as Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and others who were former allies of the United States, right? And so this, so this argument, this insight from um, uh, many in the community really helped me think about uh, how the United States um, forms allyships globally in order to help in its sort of spread of democracy, right? Um, but, but also um, uh, sort of US exceptionalism, um, spread of US exceptionalism. And yet when they no longer are useful, um, they now become the, the terrorist, right? So the terrorist ally captures that conundrum, that dilemma, right? And that kind of complex of uh, the former ally now turned a terrorist and a criminal um, who can be arrested. And then, you know, in the, in the sense of Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein killed, right? Assassinated. The Hmong American sort of uprising and movement for General Ring Pao after his arrest really highlighted that the fact that there, the distance or the difference between a refugee ally, right, the ally and the terrorist is not that far, right, that they actually are two sides of the same coin in thinking about U.S. foreign relations, um, but also thinking about um, the context of U.S. Cold War to the U.S. war on terror and, um, and the structure of U.S. empire in recruiting um, allies, but then, you know, um, criminalizing them. Right? Yeah, and I think it's such a fascinating example of how someone could be perceived as um, almost perpetuating or for extending American democratic ideals into Southeast Asia, which has been such a point of concern for the United States, especially during the mid 20th century, but then all of a sudden be criminalized for the same types of behaviors that they were once, you know, valued for. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, the, the chapters, chapters three and four, I think are such a great um, lineage of, like you said, that short distance between say the refugee soldier to the terrorist ally and, um, you know, how it becomes such conf so conflated, particularly in 
the moments post 9-11. Chapter five, on the other hand, takes on a little bit of a different figure. And that is through the grandmother figure, which you analyze through um, Kao Kalia Yang's The Late Homecomer and the film Grand Torino. So thinking about these two things uh, in conjunction with one another, how does the grandmother figure illuminate how silence can be both oppressive and productive for Hmong refugee or Hmong American remembering, especially when we think about Hmong women? Yeah, so, you know, coming from the, the other two, two chapters talking about the, the soldier and then the ally and the terrorist, um, that the oppressive part in terms of silence is that uh, the very sort of masculinized uh, narratives about whether it's the soldier ally or the terrorist um, has been a way to uh, suppress right other kinds of stories that could emerge um, from the Hmong refugee experiences. And, and, and in fact, that, that it is not just a kind of Hmong woman story, right? But it is other stories from other Hmong refugees that may not necessarily fit into the ally narrative um, that don't get told, um, that, that are always there, but not talked about. And so the, the turn to the refugee grandmother is to really highlight um, those contradictions, right? And, and the way in which uh, the masculinized narrative of the soldier has really suppressed um, other ways of knowing from, from Hmong refugees and Hmong Americans um, to say that, you know, the only way of knowing is, is through a kind of veteran perspective. Right. Um, and having of having soldiered for for the United States and, and the veteran perspective is, you know, um, and I think generally speaking, right, it is about a kind of service and sacrifice that then deserves um, to be um, deserves benefits. Right. Um, and but it is also a, a narrative of sacrifice that does politicize the relationship, um, but more so from, from the masculinized perspective. So, so that is the, the um, oppressive part of the silencing, right? But it is, it is um, you know, state silencing and, and sort of imperial silencing and the silencing of US exceptionalism. Um, and then how silences could be productive is to, again, you know, use this methodology of missing things is think about what are the things that are not said or or that are said but never really heard right um as as things that are important um or as knowledge and uh to really look at um how you know the the actions um of grandmothers the the love of grandmothers but also uh to take into account the the matriarchy, right? Um, that that does exist, right? In a sense of grandmothers being the strong figures um, within the family, um, and grandmothers uh, being the ones who tell stories and carry and stories that carry that knowledge and that history, um, and. You know, especially in the book, um, The Late Homecomer, that the grandmother for Galgalia, the, the uh, author, is one whose stories allow um, Galgalia to come into um, writing, right? And to think about um, sort of her own storytelling as, as being produced and by encouraged and produced by her grandmother's storytelling, which which were oral. The silencing is that um, that these stories, not that people, the grandmothers weren't talking, right? But they were talking and they were talking in Hmong. So in the late homecomer, what really fascinated me about the the film um, was not necessarily the, the main storyline, the main main plot line um, about you know Clint Eastwood's character. And his his redemption, 
but about the grandmother and the the story that she was telling in the subplot um, to the film and the uh, scenes in which she was speaking in Hmong, um, in which she was told to actually improvise, um, but she actually told the, you know, talked about how um, the United States recruited uh, Hmong men um, to fight in a secret war, right? Um, and so for me, the, the way the silences are productive is that not necessarily that they're not told, it's just that we don't have the um, context to hear the stories that are actually being told all the time. And, uh, you know, for all the ways in which Grand Torino is problematic, I think what's fascinating for me is that her story, you know, parts of a tiny part of the of the Hmong story is told and it is sort of circulating, right? And so for me, it is this everywhereness and the circulation of the story that um, is important. And, you know, it may not be heard by everyone, right? But once it's heard, um, that it does something, it does produce um, ongoing knowledge. Right. And I love this kind of ongoing knowledge and the opportunity that it extends beyond just the the stories that are being shared in this book, um, but also, you know, what our understanding of, say, Hmong Americanness or Hmong refugee um, histories are. And so you end the book with this concept of refugee remapping. And so what does refugee remapping allow scholars to do or encourage them to consider? Or more simply put, what are you hoping readers consider after reading your book? Yeah, so I ended with refugee remapping as a way to think about um, what do we do with the stories that we're told? And, and sometimes the stories that we're told are stories that don't necessarily, um, are not always captured, right? And, and knowledge or our understanding, broader understanding of um, history. And, and the point is not to actually retell those stories and, and, and um, in order to add, right? It's not additive. It's uh, in order to add to, you know, broader histories. And, and perhaps that some stories don't need to be told and that, that refugee remapping is, is in some ways that those stories, how do we sort of hold, create space for those stories and hold those stories um, for the people who tell them, right? And so um, part of the remapping, I read um, my Durbing's, um, the Hmong American poet, whose uh, newest book, Yellow Rain, just uh, won the honorable uh, mention for the Pulitzer in poetry is that, you know, her book, Afterland, um, in which she talks about uh, refugees returning after death, right? The return after death to meet with the ancestors um, in, in among spiritual understanding as a way to imagine, well, you know, when refugees tell their stories, um, it is for their children, right? It is for their sort of community to um, know those stories so that they, so that their children can help them trace the path that they have uh, fled from um, and the different places that they have lived um, so that once they die, they can return, right, to, to be with the ancestors. And so, um, you know, and those, and that, and to think of that process as a kind of justice in, in storytelling, right? Um, in some ways to also say, well, you know, storytelling is for knowledge, but it is always not for like a general knowledge, right? Um, and sometimes some stories are told for specific people and for family members, um, for children. And, and that's important enough. And it's what we do with with those stories um, and, and create space for them that, that is important. So, you know, I think the, the mapping and, and hoping what folks could take away from it is like, 
you know, what do we do with the stories that we're told? Um, because not every story that is told to us, um, you know, in the context of a researcher should be told, right, should be retold or, um, and not everything needs to be known. Yeah, well, you give us a lot to think about with that question. Um, what do we do with the stories that we're told? And I think history on the run gives us a really fantastic introduction into the types of conceptual, methodological uh, interventions, as well as, you know, what critiques that we could potentially present into our own fields. And I love this book. I thought it was, um, you know, one of the most thought provoking texts that I had read in this past year. So thank you so much for sharing uh, your insights and your research with us through this text. Before we go, I just want to ask, um, what can we see from you or what can we expect uh, to see from you in the future? And I know this is a question that is quite loaded for academics because, you know, you just finished this really fantastic book and now people are asking you, what what can we see from you in the future? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I am, uh, you know, really thinking about how do we, the, the other part of this is how do we teach um, um, I mean, history, but then also, uh, you know, ethnic studies as a subject matter um, in both the college classroom, but also the K through 12 classroom. So I've been doing some community work um, to and public facing work to work with K through 12 educators about um, uh, developing curriculum, but also, you know, um, understanding a broad, a broader framework, right. For, for talking about history, um, and, and topics that, that don't get talked about. And then I am also doing collaborative research. So some of my, um, Hmong American scholars and I are actually writing a anthology, um, to talk back to, um, but also move away from um, Anne Fadiman's The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down as a text that has been primarily used um, to understand who Hmong people are and where they come from, and um, but as a text that has been damaging to um, Hmong Americans. And so we are putting together that anthology. So that's something to look forward to. Oh, that sounds really exciting. I can't wait to read it. Um, so thank you so much, Ma, for joining us in our conversation today. Thank you so much.